All right. At the end of the 1983 college basketball season, Duke lost by 43 points. Now, for those of us who are UNC fans, this is not, it's not necessarily a bad, a bad thing. But every, the program was in disarray, and many thought Coach K was about to lose his job. It was game over. You can't lose by 43 points in the ACC tournament and come back, right? How could he keep his job after such a poor performance? At dinner, which was at Denny's that night, I noticed it wasn't anywhere fancy. It was at Denny's. They got whooped, so they went to Denny's. I love Denny's. I would have been okay with that. But someone raised up his glass and said, here's to forgetting about tonight. And Coach K said, put that glass down said, here's to never forgetting about t that tonight. And despite all the rumors of him losing his job, Coach K ended up keeping his job and having a very successful career. For those of you who know anything about college basketball, he had a very successful career. Well, the next, the following season when his team arrived, this was there for his players to see on the first practice of August, or Oct October 15th. The scoreboard over the court read 109 to 66. This was the final score of their last game that they played against Virginia and lost in the tournament. And players recounted that Coach K wanted them to look up the scoreboard every practice and remember what it felt like to get beat that thoroughly, to remember that day. Uh, moving forward, we see a much worse time in our nation's history, September 11th. Uh, since that horrible tragedy where two planes crashed into the Twin Towers, one into the Pentagon, one into a field in Pennsylvania, the phrase never forget has been said time and time again. You look at most 911 remembrance things, it'll say never forget. Well, we all have certain dates that we remember, right? Some of them are good, like the birth of a child or a, a marriage ceremony. Uh, others are bad, like 9-11, like we just said. Well, in the book of Haggai, we mentioned during our first sermon that the Haggai, Haggai mentions five distinct dates in just these two chapters. Uh, that he actually mentions more dates than any other prophet other than Jeremiah, who, whose book is obviously much longer than his. The Lord wants us to remember dates. He wants us to remember certain times in our life. And the Lord certainly wants his people to remember this day we're talking about for his people of Israel. And this is an important day because it is a day of blessing as we move forward. Let's go ahead and pray before we get into the word here. Heavenly Father, thank you for the opportunity to worship you today. Thank you for the the praise and worship we just got to lift up to you, and uh, God, that's not where worship ends, but it's definitely a great time to be able to, to exalt your name and lift up your name and talk about how great that you are, what you've done to save us, how, how magnificent you are, how worthy of our praise that you are. Who is like the Lord? No one, which should be our answer. No one is like you. You are above all. And that God, you, who are above all, have given us your word. And I thank you for the privilege to be able to stand up here and preach it today. And may it be your word and not mine. May you speak through me and may you open up our hearts and minds to hear it and change our lives based on that. Not with our own abilities, but by your Holy Spirit in us. May you change us from the inside out and fashion us and sanctify us more like you, Lord. We praise you and thank you for how great you are. Amen. Today we're going to see three things that you should remember. And the first is you should remember the day. You should remember the day. I'm going to reread. I'm going to read uh, Haggai 2, verse 10. On the 24th day of the ninth month, in the second year of, of Darius, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet. Very specific. We have a very specific date given here, and we're given the exact month, the day, the word of the Lord came. And if you remember at the beginning of this book, the the, the first word uh, of the Lord came the first day of the sixth month. 
Now uh, we are all the way down to the tw 21st, or the, the last one came the seventh month, 21st day, and now we are on the 24th day of the ninth month. So we're almost four months from that first original word of the Lord. That first word of the Lord that said, hey, you're not doing what you're supposed to be doing. You built your own houses, but you're not building the house of the Lord. You were standing here to build the house of the Lord, you're not obeying. And now they've been working on the, the work for about three months since they actually started the work on the house of the Lord. And now we have yet another word uh, from the Lord through the prophet Haggai. And his word is to remember this day, and we see that at the, the end of this section. But as we discussed, dates are, are extremely important for us to remember. And, and the question is, why is that? And we're going to see the Lord wants us to remember dates. There are multiple times in Israel's history where they're like, hey, where he's set up a monument, remember what I did. Set this up. He crossed, they crossed the Jordan on dry land, take 12 stones. This happens multiple, multiple times because he realizes that we are a simple people. We forget. I mean, you know, some of us can't remember what we ate for breakfast this morning. I mean, we really can't remember things very well. And when it comes to the Lord, when things start to get tough and, and, and all these outside forces start to come, it's really easy to forget how powerful God is in our lives. It's really easy to start freaking out and be like, okay, what am I supposed to do? And, and also, we forget sometimes how bad things are without God. I, we forget what it was like to, to live our life without God and not know which way was up and which way was down and what truth was. We're just so quick to forget, and, and God realizes how quickly we forget him and what he's done. And consider the book of Exodus. We see this just played out in no easier way to see than Exodus 14, 11. So Israel's just been delivered through across the Red Sea. The Red Sea is a pretty big body of water. Huge walls of water uh, are, are about to come up. But right before that happens, they get to the Red Sea, and here comes Pharaoh's army chasing them. And now here's this huge group of people of Israel, this army coming after them, and there's water. Well, what are they going to do now, right? And what, here's their response. They said to Moses, is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you've taken, you've taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us and bringing us out of Egypt? Well, he'd just done 10 miraculous things in Egypt bad for Egypt, but miraculous for Israel to see in those ten plagues, the final one being the death of every firstborn in, in Egypt. And they've just plundered the Egyptians. The Egyptians wanted them to get out so bad, they said, take everything. Just here's a bunch of money, here's food, here's this. And they've taken everything. And now, here they come, they're here, and what do they forget? They forget the Lord. They forget what the Lord just did, and they don't think the Lord can deliver them now. They're all going to die. And they're yelling at Moses, like, what'd you do? You just want us to die here in the in the, you know, in the middle of nowhere, in the wilderness, can't you feel their impressive faith? You know, it's just so impressive to see their faith. I think not, right? So they just saw the, the Lord do these miracles, and now they're completely hopeless. But then we know what happens next, right? If we know this story, if, uh, this account, uh, Exodus 14, 21 through 22, then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove, drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided and the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. I mean, that's certainly another day of remembrance for Israel as they remember that miracle, these huge walls, and they go on on dry ground. And I just, I'm, I'm just amazed by that dry ground thing, too. I mean, how long does it take the ground to dry out when it's underwater for that long of a period of time? But God miraculously does that. And so the question I have for you is, do you have a day 
of remembrance in your life. So when you think of Israel, you think of of the book of Haggai here. He's telling them to remember this day. Do you have a day of remembrance in your life? When you think about your life, do you have a day of remembrance? I I pray that the first day that comes to your mind is the day you got saved. I, I pray that that is the first day. I understand some of us may not know an exact day. We may not be able to put the date on it and say this is exactly when, but I pray that we at least remember a roundabout time. Most of us have a certain time where God does that. Some of us may have a season of time where we, where we realize that we went from wanting what, wanting what we wanted to wanting what God wanted, that he changed us and made us new during that time period. But we should have a certain time or time period, small time period there. And, th- and that day of salvation something you need to remember time and time again. Don't forget how the Lord saved you. Don't forget that day. Remember that day. Because when all hope seems lost, when, when the world seems like it's crashing down, when relationships aren't going the way you wanted them to, uh, when, when work's not going the way you wanted it to, when finances aren't going the way you wanted it to, remember that day that he saved your soul, that you went from hell to heaven, that you went from lost to found. That is a miraculous, wonderful day in your life where he made you new. And remember that day because it reminds you of who you are in Christ. When the world says you're not enough, you're not good enough, no, you're not good at anything, you're not worth anything, God says, I died for you. I love you. You're a child of the King of kings and Lord of lords. You are a son or daughter adopted by God. We need to remember that day. My friends, we should always remember that day, the day that our life changed forever. And next, number two, you should remember the distress. You should remember the distress. I'm going to start by reading verses 11 through 13. Thus says the Lord of hosts, ask the priest about the law. If someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches with his fold bread or stew or wine or oil or any kind of food, does it become holy? The priest answered, no. Then Haggai said, if someone who is unclean by contact with a dead body touches any of these Does it become unclean? The the priest answered and said, it does become unclean. So these verses, first off, seem really confusing. We don't really, if if you're not familiar with the Old Testament law, the sacrifices, cleanliness, uncleanliness, you you read this and you're like, Haggai, what are you saying? I don't get it. I, I don't get what this is. Well, first we need to see that he's talking to who? the priests. He, he wants the priests to answer these questions, and the priests answer these questions because they were the interpreters of the Mosaic law. They were the ones who should have known whether something was clean or unclean. They're the ones that examined skin conditions to see if the people could go back to live with everybody else, or they need to be put somewhere else, and so they're the ones, they're the experts uh, of this field, per se. And so the first question here is in regards to the holy meat, and this, this holy meat was probably a, a sacrifice uh, that was a, a, a free will offering sacrifice, as we see in Leviticus 7, 15 through 16. So after, after performing the sacrifice, there would be some meat left over, and they would carry it in the fold of their garment back to their place. And Leviticus 7, 15 through 16 says this, And the flesh of the sacrifice of his peace offering, offerings for thanksgiving, shall be eaten on the day of the, the offering. He shall not leave any of it to the morning. But then here's the one it probably is. But if the sacrifice of his offering is a vow offering or free will offering, it shall be eaten on the day that he offers a sacrifice or, and on the next day of what remains of it shall be eaten. So he's, he's carrying this back. This is a holy meat unto the Lord. It's been sacrificed by the Lord or sacrificed to the Lord. And so it itself is holy and the garment that it touched is holy. 
But yet, if we see, uh, so, so Leviticus 6.27 tells us this, whatever touches its flesh shall be holy, and when any of its blood is splashed on a garment, you shall wash that on which it was splashed in a holy place. So when, when we look at this, the meat made the robe holy, but the robe did not make anything else holy. And you're like, well, where are you going with this, Pastor Jonathan? I'm not sure I'm tracking with you. What he's saying is God makes people holy, but people don't make other people holy. He said, you know, here's the thing, Israel. You aren't holy just because you're holy. Like, you're, I've set you apart. I have made you holy, and that holiness relies on obedience to me. I pour out my holiness upon you, but you have no ability to give your holiness to someone else. I am the only holy one. You are sinners. You, you have to continue to sacrifice because you're not holy. Holiness is not a natural thing that comes to people. Sin is a natural thing that comes to people. Holiness is a natural thing that comes to God. He is holy, eternal, holy. Although Israel is set apart, they are a people set apart unto the Lord, they, they have no ability to do good on their own. They have to do good with the Lord as the Spirit of the Lord is within their midst as they build this temple. The temple is not holy because these people are holy. The temple is holy because God is working in their midst to build the temple and he will fill it. Then, then comes the second question. This whole, uh, then Haggai said, if someone who is unclean by contact with a dead body, this is Haggai, uh, this is 13, 213 here. If someone who is unclean by contact with a dead body touches any of these, does it become unclean? And the priest answered and said, yes, it does become unclean. So notice that God asks the exact opposite question here. The first one was, how can holiness be transferred? And pretty much says, you can't transfer holiness, you're not holy. Well, here we're going to see the, de the defilement uh, of, of touching a dead body. And, and God's going to let Israel know that defilement is their specialty. If there's something they're really good at, you know, people have specialties, things that they're really good at, sin and defilement is Israel's specialty, and frankly, it's our specialty in our flesh. Our, our natural flesh is really good at doing un, uh, sinful things, things that are not good. So if they were disobedient to the Lord, everything that they touched was unclean. Everything. Uh, and it was, it was as if they touched a dead body, and for us, we're like, well, what are you, what are you talking about? Well, in Israel, dead bodies were bad. Like, it was, you touch a dead body, you were out for seven days. You couldn't be in the camp. There was a, a cleanliness you had to go through. It was a big deal. And you're like, well, why was God so hardcore about dead bodies? You know, death is kind of natural, right? Why is death natural? Sin. Sin's why death is natural. So death reminds us of sin, which leads to death. And so there's nothing holy about death. Death is a curse. It is a bad thing that we die. It's not a good thing that we die. Now, it's, if you're in Christ, it's a really good thing because all the bad stuff is going to die with you, and you're going to live forever in heaven with God in a new glorified body. That's a, a blessing. But death itself is, is awful. The fact that our bodies decay, that we have to die, it's part of the fall of man in Genesis 3. It's not a good thing, and so that reminds us about that. It reminds us of our uncleanliness. He wants them to know, though, that they naturally are unclean. It's like they touch a dead body. Like, you know, anything you do in your own abilities, that's what it's like. And Haggai 2.14, he moves on and says, then Haggai answered and said, so it is with this people uh, and with this nation before me. Let me get back over. Here we go. Verse 14. Uh, yeah, so, so it is with this people and with this nation before me, declares the Lord. 
and so with the work of their hands, and what they offer there is unclean. So what comes natural to them is to offer unclean things. They are naturally unclean. And he asserts that, that they bring nothing to the table. They can't puff their chest up and say, look at what we've done for you, God. They, they bring nothing good. And you know what, brothers and sisters, the same is true for us today. Sometimes we think we're pretty good, right? We, we bring something. We show up at church. We bring something positive, right? But anything that we do for the Lord that's not according to his name, in his name, and in his power, is going to be burned up for all eternity. Hear what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3, 12 through 13. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it. That's the end times. Because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. So my friends, the Lord will test everything that you do on earth, and it will be tested with fire. And whether it lasts or it doesn't last will determine rewards in heaven if we're looking forward. Uh, for some, and the Bible actually even says that some will make it as one escaping the very flames of hell, barely kind of getting in. So here's the thing. If you do something not in the name of God, you do something for your own glory and recognition, for people to say, yeah, that's, that's a great guy right there. That's a great gal right there. Look how, how wonderful they are. Uh, when you do something for your own satisfaction, well, that makes me feel good to do this nice thing for other people. I feel pious. I feel righteous. You, you do it, even if you do it for people more than God. Oh, I just love other people. Everything I do is because I love other people. But it's really not, your, your focus is on them and not on God. It's all in you, in their name, not in the, the name of God, it'll be like wood, hay, or straw. Some burn up faster than others, right? Straw, but they all burn up in the refining fire of the Lord. There, there will be no rewards for those deeds. Only what is done in the name of Christ, through his power and in his will, will last. They'll be like gold or precious metals or like gems that don't burn up. They actually get more pure or pure by the fire. It actually refines them, and they will last. And those who do such things will be rewarded by their Heavenly Father. So think about that when you think of your motives, why you do what you do. Why do you serve in the church? Why are you kind to your neighbor? Why do you work hard at your job? Why do you treat your family well? Why do you treat your spouse well? Is it selfish? I don't want to get in trouble treat my spouse well because I like sleeping in my bed instead of the couch. You know, what, if that's it, then, then that, that, that's not the right motive. I treat my spouse well because God tells me to. He tells me to love my wife as Christ loved the church, and I want to glorify God because marriage is one of the best ways you can glorify God by showing that example of love and patience and kindness. I work hard at my job because I'm to do everything for the glory of God. I don't do it because I want to make a ton of money. I don't do it because I want people to think I'm the best in the in the business or whatever it is, I want to I do my best, give my best, because God has given me his best. I want to glorify him through that. Haggai moves forward here to remind them of the first word. If you recall, and if you were here for the first sermon, we saw God's sovereign judgment upon Israel. And in Haggai 1.6, he said, You have sown much but ha and harvested little. You eat but never have enough. You drink but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves. No one is warm, though. Right? But, but he who earns wages does so to put him in a bag with holes. And moving on to 10, 
and 11. Therefore the heavens above you have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce, and I have called for a drought on the land and the hills, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast, and on all their labors. So here, it's a pretty depressing group of verses, isn't it? Things are just not going really well. They, they, they make money, and they put them in a bag with holes. It's like you're walking, and you keep putting things in, and money just keeps going behind you. They, they can't seem to get any traction, gain any ground in their, their work. He, he wants them to remember that distress before they were obedient. Th- this was sovereign judgment because they weren't doing what he had called them to do. And so they're, they're struggling through this, and so he reminds them of that again in this word in verses 15 through 18. Now then consider from this day onward before stone was placed upon stone in the temple of the Lord. How did you fare when one came to a heap of 20 measures? There was but 10. When, when one came to the wine vat to draw 50 measures, there were but 20. I struck you and all the, the products of your tor- toil with blight and with mildew and with hail, yet you did not turn to me, declares the Lord. Consider from this day onward, from the 24th day of the ninth month, there's that day again, remember that day, since the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid. Consider. So God tells them to consider from this day forward. Uh, this phrase actually really sounds a lot like we talked about in our first one. Our first sermon was called Consider Your Ways. That was said twice in verses 5 and 7 in chapter 1. And that meant they were to think deeply about what they were doing, to think deeply about where they'd come from, and they need to think deeply about where they are now based on where they came from. He wants them to remember this day and to remember their former distress. He wants them to remember when they only had half the grain that they had harvested, that they expected. You know, they only had a half return. And, and when, they, when they were growing grapes, they only had 40% of what they expected for that. He wants them to remember the disease of their produce, the natural disasters like hail and things like that. He, he wanted them to remember that their disobedience came with consequences. It came with distress. And he, he wanted to remind them that their distress is, being, is due to disobedience, but they had not considered their disobedience for quite some time. If you remember Cyrus, uh, there's a, um, a, on your way out, if you want to grab a, a timeline, there's a timeline of this time period of Israel. And if you remember Cyrus the, the Great, uh, actually in 537 B.C. said, hey, you can go and you can rebuild your temple. This is a pagan king that's telling Israel, the Jews, you can go, and 50,000 of them go. And they're like, wow, this is a big deal. We're, we're going to go back. But then if you remember, you recall, there was a little persecution. There were some people that were not really happy with this, and the people stopped. They laid a foundation, and they stopped. And it wasn't until 520 that the book of Haggai, the word of the Lord, we, we see it come during 520. So we're looking at 17 years that these people were disobedient to God, not doing what he had called them to do. They'd started the work but did not finish it. And it's obvious that Israel decided to blame their, un- their misfortune on something other than God's judgment. Uh, they were like, well, it can't be that, right? Because he, he got us here. We're, we're, not, we're not over there anymore. We're not victims of Persia. We've been blessed. We've been allowed to come here. We're living free at this point, so we must be fine. And so they would just say, well, maybe it was Mother Nature that was causing the problem, maybe it was just bad luck. That's why the produce wasn't good. That's why our money kept just disappearing. Isn't that what the world does today, though? Isn't that what many in the world do today? They, they disobey God, make anti-biblical decisions, and then don't repent. 
they, they take a job that is just frankly immoral. Everybody knows this is not a good place to work. It's a very bad place to work. And they wonder why life's not going that well. Uh, they continue intimate relationships that are not holy. And they just wonder why, why things not work. Why do they keep ending, ending bitterly? Why, why don't these relationships with unbelievers not work if I'm a believer? Why, why as an unbeliever do I keep having these relationships and they don't work? Things, things do bad. Uh, they, they drink too much and they wonder why they can't keep a job. They wonder why their relationships are just crashing all around them. They do drugs or they do whatever it is, and they're like, why, why do things keep turning out poorly for me? You know, it just must be Mother Nature. It must be something else. They, they, it can't be their disobedience that leads to these bad things, right? Can't be, it can't be what I do that causes me problem. It, it must be people are out to get me. You know, everybody's just out to get me. I'm, you know, I'm the victim. Everybody's trying to get me. Or it's a systemic issue in our society. That's a big one today. It's a systemic, everybody's out to get me. I, I, I'm not privileged, so I can't do any better. This is as good as it gets. It's not because I'm being disobedient. It's not because of my alcohol problem or my drug problem or the fact that I never study in school. That's not what it is. It can't be because I'm the victim. Or it's due to the way their parents treated them when they were growing up. You know, we had such a rough time, right? And they, uh, these kids and young people, they continue to, to call out victimhood, and that's the reason my life's not going well, because mom didn't do this, or dad didn't do this, or dad left, and this is what happened, or mom did. But my friends, we are not the victims. I'm not saying that those things aren't bad, that those things don't happen, that people are not responsible for their own sins, that some of us have awful childhoods, and we've talked about that before. Some of us have had horrible situations, but that we're, we're not the victim. We are the perpetrators, my friend. My friends, we, we are the perpetrators. We are sinners. We are the reason Christ hung on the cross. And if we continue to play the victim, we can never be saved because we'll never admit that we're a sinner. We'll never admit that we have problems. We'll never admit that it was our fault, our sin, the punishment that we deserve that was placed upon Jesus Christ on that cross. And that is the danger of this victimhood mentality that we continue to see. This is not a political rhetoric. This is a, a gospel issue. When we think it's everybody else's fault, when we think everyone else has sin, but we're good, we can never be saved. We must realize that we are prone to wonder, we are prone to disobey, that we need to remember the consequences of our sin. And for us who are in Christ, who have been saved, we need to, we need to remember the distress that we had before we were saved. We need to remember how he reached into the mire, into the pit, and lifted us out and set us on the solid rock of Jesus Christ. How he cleansed us by his blood, how he delivered us from evil. And only when we truly repent from our sins, we acknowledge that we're not just the victim, we're the perpetrator. We, we are the ones that put the nails through his wrists. We are the ones that put the nails through his ankles. We're the reason that he breathed agonal breaths before he quit breathing and said, it is finished, as we'll see in a moment. We are that problem. We're the reason that Jesus had to die. And we must repent of our sins and turn to Jesus Christ, who died on the cross for our sins and rose three days later, the sinless Son of God who was put in our place. We need to repent and put our trust in Him. Friends, remember what it was like if you are in Christ, what it was like to be without Him. Remember that day too, the day before you got saved, the day that your life was hopeless that you were destined for hell for all eternity. There was no purpose of life. And then remember the day you did get saved. If you, some of you here may still be in that distress. You're like, I, I, don't, can't, I don't have a day to remember as far as salvation, but I do remember the days of distress because I just had one yesterday. I just had one this morning. I woke up and 
Things just aren't going well. Nothing goes well in my life. Everything turns out bad. My friends, not to excuse the sin of others. There are others that take advantage of us, abuse us, treat us horribly. That is part of this life. But my friends, we're no better. We are the perpetrators. We are sinners, and we must see ourselves as such. As Paul said, he was the worst of sinners. He didn't say, oh, that guy over there is a lot worse than me. No, he said, I am the worst of sinners. And we cannot be saved unless we believe that we are a sinner needing salvation. And maybe you are that person that's still in distress. You continue to reap the reward of your labor, which is really a curse for your labor. Things don't go well. Life is not nearly as fulfilling as you thought it would be, living the way you want to live. I pray that you repent and turn to Christ, if that is you. Remember your distress and repent. And then remember, that then you will be able to remember the day you were saved. And you'll be able to remember the declaration, which is our last point here. Verse 19 says this, Is the seed yet in the barn? Indeed, the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree have yielded nothing. But from this day on, I will bless you. Wow, this has been a tough, tough situation here, like a lot of hard words. But from this day on, I will bless you. Such a declaration. At the beginning of verse 19, a lot of people don't understand what that means. And what he's saying is he expects a negative answer to this rhetorical question. The people of Israel, uh, it, this is right after they had planted the seed. Of course, there's no return on their harvest yet. The seed is still on the ground germinating. And as he gives this promise, he's saying, hey, your next harvest will be better because you're, you're obedient. I will bless you. And this will happen. From this day on, I will bless you. What, what an amazing promise given to Israel. He, he reminded them that they only had a 50% return on their, their harvest of grain, a 40% return on their grapes. But things were about to change now, and he was going to bless them for their obedience. They were to remember this day. This was a day of remembrance for the people of Israel. No longer were they adversaries of God, but they were friends of God. They were no longer these people that we saw in, in chapter 1, but they were now my people. Isn't that amazing to be his people? I pray that we all are his people. We're not these people, but we are his people, chosen and saved. As we mentioned a couple of, of weeks ago, the Lord of hosts, the, the God of angel armies, is on their behalf fighting for them. And my friends, if we have Christ, there is a declaration upon us as well. Isn't that amazing to think about? Listen to 1 Peter 2.9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. We were in distress, my friends. We were in the darkness. We were without hope. We were without salvation. And yet he reached in and picked us up and put us, placed us into his marvelous light. How amazing is that? His marvelous light. Remember that day where he washed your sins away. And know that he is there, and he continues to be there from that day forward, moving forward. Uh, his blessing, the blessing upon Israel seemed nice. You know, they did, they obeyed, then they, it was prosperity blessing for, for Israel. It was protection and prosperity blessing. Uh, we don't have that uh, prosperity blessing in the New Testament. That, that's not taught in the New Testament. But we have an even better promise. And a lot of churches will try to falsely teach that. But we have a better promise than prosperity and things will go well. That, it, they'll go well in the fact that we will be right with God. 
Life may be tough, we may be persecuted, things may not look well, but they will go well. We will have peace and fulfillment. And we have the promise of eternal life that cannot be lost if we are truly in Christ, if we are sealed with the Holy Spirit. You see, Israel, it looked like a really good blessing, and it had no problem with God. God had no problem with his covenant. The covenant did not fall apart because of God. It fell apart because of man. And we know in A.D. 70, that temple that they're working so hard to build right now gets destroyed again. And now there is a, a Muslim mosque in the dome, of the, dome, or dome of the Rock in the place of where the temple should be. God judged them yet again by the destruction of the temple. But, but for us, the promise of blessing is eternal. It's not a temporal blessing. It, it, it's not a blessing that relies on our works. We work because we're saved. We don't work to be saved. Our blessing is not dependent on our works. But if we are his children, he will do good works through us. And he, he promises to continue fighting alongside us as we do this life. As it's hard, as things are tough, as we have difficult decisions to make, we get to verses like this in Romans 8.31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Is that not an amazing verse, amazing promise? God is stronger than all. What do we have to fear? And, and in 1 John 4.4, 4, he says this in the same vein. This is John writing, Little children, you are from God and have overcome them, for he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Jesus is greater than Satan. Uh, he cannot stand up to Jesus. Actually, at the name of Jesus Christ, Satan must flee. I mean, how amazing is that? That's the God that lives in us if we are believers. The Holy Spirit comes and indwells us if we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And above all, I want us to remember this declaration that Jesus gave on the cross. In the book of John, the Gospel of John, chapter 19, verse 30, is Christ hangs on the cross as he's been crucified for the sins of the world, as the wrath of God has been placed upon him instead of us. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. He didn't say it started. He didn't say it's ongoing. He said, it is finished. What was finished? Victory over sin and death. The grave had been defeated for all eternity. For those who would put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ could be saved by the blood of the Lamb, it was finished. No more work that you needed to do or I needed to do to be saved. Free gift of salvation. As we come to a close, I, I, I pray that you remember the day that you were saved. I also pray that you remember the distress before that. I pray that you remember what it was like to live without Christ. And for some of us who are saved at an early age, maybe we'll have a hard time remembering that, remembering how hard it was to live that life. Well, I pray that we realize those times where we've been further away from God and we realize how lost we feel, even though he is there. I pray that we remember what it was like to have the chains of sin removed from us. Remember the hopelessness that you may have experienced, the depth of the sin that you were saved from. But finally, I want us to remember the declaration that Christ has set upon us if we are in him. It is finished. You have been saved and sealed by the Holy Spirit, been saved by the King of kings and Lord of lords. My friends, there's still going to be difficult times. You're going to have days that are rough. You're going to have weeks that are rough, sometimes even months that are rough. My friends, he who is, greater than, is, he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercy. God, I pray that if, there, if there's anybody here who has not been saved, who has not repented or turned away from their sins and believed in you, Lord,
but they've not placed their faith and their trust in you. I pray that today becomes a day that they remember. I pray that today is a day of remembrance for, for someone here that does not know you as their Lord and Savior. Someone here who has maybe heard the gospel multiple times. Maybe they've known it since they were kids. Maybe they've went to church, they've done whatever, but they don't know you as their Lord and Savior personally. They haven't repented or turned away from their sins. They haven't said, I don't want to be the Lord of my life anymore. I want you to be the Lord of my life. They haven't fully given themselves to you. If there's anyone here that hasn't done that, I pray that their distress leads them to you, Lord. That they realize things aren't working the way I do things. I'm not living in your will. I'm living in my own. And I pray that they'll be able to remember today as a day of declaration where Christ says, it is finished, you are saved. You no longer are destined for hell, but you are destined for heaven. If there's anyone here that has not placed their faith and trust in Christ or has some questions and just doesn't know if they've really done that or not, I would love to talk with you. I would love to chat with you about what that means. Feel free to come to me after the service and, and we'll hash it out and we'll talk about what it truly means to be saved. For others that may be here that do know you as their Lord and Savior, God, I pray that you help us to remember that day. Remember the day that you saved us, that you washed our sins away. And may we live in remembrance of that day, knowing that we can walk forward because we know how great you are and what you've done in our lives. We praise you, we thank you, and we love you. May our lives glorify you. Amen.